As we have had the privilege of spending some time with Pastor John taking us through Paul's letter to the Philippian church, we have had a number of sermons and messages in, inspiring us on how to live as a church, how to pursue reconciliation, how to deal with conflict, how to experience contentment, how to express generosity. And we're grateful for that. And now as we move into this season of preparing for the passion of our Lord, we're a little bit early in celebrating what we would call Palm Sunday or the triumphal entry of Christ into the city of Jerusalem prior to his trial, arrest, and conviction, and persecution unto death. But what I want us to do today is to spend time thinking about what Christ has said about himself, what we know from the scriptures about our God, what he requires of us, and who he is, and how we should worship him. Next Sunday, we will continue this message. Uh, I'll bring another message uh, focusing on the particular aspects of the triumphal entry, and we will use Psalm 118 as a prophetic expression of how Jesus has pointed to himself in the Old Testament as the fulfillment of prophecy. So as we start, we want to ask this question, who is this coming king? And we have three elements that we're going to unfold through this, this threefold psalm. Who is this coming king? First, he is the creator Lord who owns all things and all people. He owns all things and all people. Second, he's the holy Lord who summons holy worshipers to his blessed presence. He is holy and yet he summons us to himself. And then third, he is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, the glorious king who comes to us in power. And we're going to see all three of these aspects unfolded through Psalm 24. So first of all, he is the creator Lord who owns all things and all people. You see this in the very first verses, the earth is the Lord's. Uh, he's, he's making a declaration. This is his earth. He created it. It belongs to him. He owns it, and he owns everything in it. There's nothing here that's not his. Can I say it any other way? It's all his. You've probably heard the famous quote from Abraham Kuyper probably too many times. The quote is this, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign or Lord over all, does not exclaim, mine. But of course, if you're a Kuyper fan, you know that he didn't say that. He actually said this. But I can't read that, so I translated it into English for you. I hope you don't mind. Some of you read Dutch. I know that. We'll talk after. You can, you can see if I got the translation correctly. But that fits verse 1, doesn't it? The earth is the Lord's. Everything in it. What does God say when he looks at us, looks at his earth, looks at the universe, looks at the stars? He says, mine. And no one can say otherwise. And then verse 2 gives us the basis for his claim or, or for our acceptance of God's ownership. It's because he made it. He founded it. He established it. He uses those words. He put it in place. He set it up. He made it so we could live in it. Did, have you thought about that recently? It's not just a coincidence that this place is a, an inhabitable planet. He created the place and he created us to live in it. All right? That's something we should ponder when we consider that it is his. It's not comfortable for us, so now we take ownership. We have dominion, but we don't have ownership. That's two different things. He made people, 
And he put us on this dry land, it says there. He, he established it upon the rivers, placed it upon the seas, okay? And he gave us air. He gave us food. He gave us atmospheric pressure. He gave us gravity. He gave us the ability to move and think and learn and grow and laugh and sing and dance and create so that we could serve him and know him. He gave us life. He gave us existence itself. He chose to do that. This is not an accident. And if you're, if you're in this room, you've probably already come to that realization. You're, you're here because you believe that. This is who our coming king is. He's the one who gave you everything you have, everything you need for life and godliness. He's the one who's coming. The owner is coming. It's his earth, and we're his people. Now, this does not have God saying, everything you do is fine because it's mine. That's not what he's saying. He's saying he's the creator, he's the owner, he's the master. He decides what earth is for, and he decides what we do with it. He decides who lives here. He decides how we're supposed to conduct ourselves because he made it and us, everything and everyone. Now, I want to give you a little object lesson so that this kind of finds its way home even further to your heart. This is my guitar. I made it. That means I decide what's done with it. That means I decide who gets to use it. And that means I decide what it's for. It's a guitar, it's not a cutting board, and it's not a sledgehammer. That's not what it's for. And if someone else does use it, that's at my bidding, at my permission. And I want them to play it in tune the way it's meant to be played. I know how it works. I put it together. Now, granted, I did make it from a kit from previously uh, created parts that were acquired and assembled, but I did a lot of the carving and the sanding and the oiling and the wiring and the drilling. There's actually a drill bit in the bottom of here broken off, gentlemen. You can't see it. You won't see it. But this is my guitar, and I get to decide who uses it, how it's used, what it's for. And if someone comes along and you're using my guitar, Peter, and they try to take it from you or do something bad with it, I would expect you would defend my property if you're going to be a good steward of it. Look at Peter, such a good guy. He would protect my creation, right? Does that register with you? That the earth is the Lord's because he made it. And you are his because he made you. All right? Now, granted, Jesus, our Lord, God the Father, did not require a kit to assemble you, did not require previously existing materials to cause the earth to come into existence. So the analogy falters badly there. But I think the principle of ownership and mastery and stewardship is evident in something that belongs to me because I made it. I hope that you would honor that if it's my guitar 
And likewise, I would hope that God would be honored by the way we use his creation, both the world around us and our own bodies. Everything and everything we do is under his sovereign care and under his command. That then also excludes all other kings, all other claims to sovereignty over your life. All other claims to sovereignty over your life must take subordination to God's claim on your life. He has ultimate authority, and that also includes me thinking that I have the ultimate authority over what I do with my life because I belong to him. Amen? Amen? Amen. This is his too, although it was assembled from other materials. So who owns me? Who owns you? Our creator king. He's the king. I'm not. So who is this coming king? He's the creator. He's the owner. He's the maker and ruler of all that there is and everyone in it. That's who our coming king is. So what are some applications we can take away from this first principle, that he's our creator king? Well, we are creatures under his care and command, and that means we can do all that he intends. Everything that's intended for that guitar over there can be done with that guitar, more or less. And so we have to trust him that he can do all that he intends with our lives. Should we worry? Not if he's king. Should we strive? Not if he's king. Should we? Could we? Is it right for us to envy what others have? Not if he's the king. How about power trips? Trying to exert, exert authority over other people. Force them to do your will. Not if he's the king. Binding someone else's conscience. That's unfit for a creature. Only God can bind our conscience. And then we are stewards. We're to think of ourselves as stewards, not owners. We have to live as caretakers of his creation. He sets the purpose. We live it out. So the question we can ask ourselves is, how can I serve him with all that he's given me? And likewise, as I mentioned about the guitar, we should be defending his sovereignty over his creation. We should be proclaiming his authority over what he has made and what he owns. So no other king gets to rule any part of it. Is there someone standing in his way? We should stand up for him. So, he's the creator Lord who owns all things and all people, and our coming king. Secondly, he's the holy Lord who summons holy worshipers to his blessed presence. See that next slide there, Dylan? He's the holy Lord who summons holy worshipers to his blessed presence. This psalm, which we, we see in the in scriptures, is a psalm of David, okay, written by David, was likely first associated with the occasion of bringing the ark into Jerusalem to be placed within the tabernacle, which was set up there. Remember, this is prior to the building of Solomon's temple. So there was no temple at the time of this writing of this psalm. It's an entry psalm. Here comes the presence of God, okay? And we can read about that in 2 Samuel 6 and verse 16. I'm not going to read it to you, but I encourage you to take a look at 2 Samuel 6 if you haven't read it recently. There's two, part, two portions of the movement of the ark, one beautiful and good and glorious and one not good because it didn't obey God's design, his command. 
And even though it speaks of gates and doors, we should not be thinking of the, the Solomon's temple gates and doors. We should be thinking of the city gates um, because that temple had not been erected yet. And we should also think of the gates of the city as what's referred to in verses 7 through 10. We'll get there in just a moment. So having looked at these first two verses and asserted God's ownership over, the, over all of creation, his rule and all of those, over all those who dwell, the psalm now addresses the coming of people into God's presence. So the first, the first bit is, he's the creator God. Everything is his. The next thing to ask is, that the psalm asks is, who can come into his presence? And that's kind of an awesome question. We've, we've, we've dealt with it and talked about it and sung about it in our, in our worship already this morning. The sermon has already been sung. But the principle I want you to look at here is the psalm takes great care to show who can come into the presence of our coming king, right? The earth is his, everything in it, so who can come into the presence of our holy creator king? This is his world. He made it. But just because it belongs to him doesn't mean it conforms to his plan. Amen? We say that with sadness, right? You don't have to read far in the book of Genesis to discover even though they had a perfect world, God's first created people turned from him, disobeyed him, rejected him, sought their own kingship, set their own rules, followed their own plan, pursued their own desires. How did that go? We're still experiencing the consequences of the fall. If we, like them, are fallen, and we are, if we are sinful like them, and we are, if we're unworthy of a relationship with God in his world, on his holy hill, in his sacred tabernacle, how do we enter his presence? How do we ascend his holy hill? It's his hill. How do we stand in his holy place? It's his holy place. What's required for us? Do we come on our own terms, or is there something more? I'm sure that none of you like to think about COVID. I'm sure that most of you are hoping you'd never hear that word again. No matter how you feel about how it all went down, no matter how you were affected by it, and I know some of you were profoundly affected by it, even lost loved ones. It's, it's, a, it's a terrible thing. It's horrible. But it, it still has lingering effects, and I think those, some of those effects are emotional on us. Do you recall that, that different authorities in your life, in this world, in this community, they placed restrictions on who could go where and what you had to do in order to enter certain places, right? Have you gotten the shot? Do you have your vaccine card? What about the booster? Have you had a recent test? What were the test results? Have you been out of state? Have you been out of the country? You have to wear a mask if you want to come inside. Wash your hands for 30 seconds or 30 minutes. I forget which one it was. I'm going to take your temperature. You have to let me. Fill out this form. Bring a note from your physician. Who can enter this airplane? Who can stand in this line? Six feet apart, please, right? And if you don't comply, you can't come in. You can't come up here. You can't stand here. You can't be near me. You could lose your job. There's rules. And whether you agree with these precautions or not, whether you think they should have been stronger or not, 
If they, if they own the place, they make the rules, right? Now, here's our holy creator God who owns the place, and he declares what's required in order to be in his presence. You see the parallel, all right? So in verse 3, we could, we could easily say, read the sign. Who can come into his holy presence? Read the sign. Who's going to ascend the hill or the mountain of the Lord? Read the sign. Who can stand in his holy place? Read the sign. Do you remember Moses? Um, Exodus 20, we have the Ten Commandments, right? Exodus 19 is when God is calling Moses to come up on his holy mountain. And do you remember? Maybe you haven't read it recently. Do you remember? that It wasn't just like, come on, let's have a party up on the hill. Let's go. Come one, come all. No problem. Everybody's welcome. Come on up. No problem. No. It was a command to Moses, have the people wash. Everybody has to wash, okay? They all had to wash. Why? Because God said so. 30 seconds, 30 minutes, I don't know what it took to wash two million people. They all had to wash, and then God said, and they don't get to come up on the mountain. They can't even touch the mountain, or I'll be very angry. No, they'll die. They touch the mountain, they'll die. But they washed, I know. The rule is, they wash, and they don't touch the mountain. And only Moses and only Aaron can come up on the mountain to be on my holy mountain. God makes the rules... He sets the consequences, and he carries it out. It's serious, folks. So when we see in Psalm 24, isn't it great? God wants to be with his people. It's kind of scary because the requirements are what? Clean hands and a pure heart. You, you can't swear deceitfully. You can't lift up your soul to something that's false. I don't qualify. Folks, there's only one who qualifies, right? And it's not Pastor John. I, some of you were saying Pastor John. No, it's not even Pastor John. It's Jesus. Jesus is the only one of himself who has clean hands and a pure heart, who's not done anything deceitful ever. He's the only sinless one. He's the only one who meets the qualifications for being able to ascend to God's holy hill and stand in God's holy place. Do you remember the story, uh, the rest of the story of, of bringing the ark up into Jerusalem? The, the first time they tried to bring it up, you know, David assembled, uh, I think, 30,000 chosen men to lead a procession, and they placed the ark. Uh, it was at the house of Abinadab after it had been taken back from the Philistines, house of Abinadab, and they put it on this new cart, and they're carrying the cart up, and this guy Uzzah is helping to move the cart along, and the Oxen stumble and the cart kind of jostles and he puts out his hand to steady the ark and what happens? He dies because he touched the ark. He just touched it. He's not allowed to touch it. And, and they're not supposed to, to put it on a cart and carry it on a cart. The way you're supposed to carry the ark is with poles. God said so. He gave you the rule, Exodus 25, this is how the ark's to be made, this is what it's supposed to be made of, these are the dimensions, and this is how you're supposed to carry it, with poles. Don't touch it. Can't touch it. And only the sons of Kohath, one of the Levites, only the people of that particular descent of Aaron could carry it. 
You had to be of a certain lineage, and you had to carry it with these poles, and that's the only way that you were allowed to transport the ark. God's rules. God's holiness. Seems kind of arbitrary. Well, that's because we're not the owner. He is. He's the owner. He determines how it's to be carried. So when they didn't follow his instructions and Uzzah suffered death as a consequence of breaking God's law, that's justice. Wow. God's serious about his holiness. And when we look at the requirements, clean hands, pure heart, not swear deceitfully, not lift up your soul to anything that's false, only Jesus meets that requirement. He is the one who can ascend the hill of the Lord. He's the one who can stand in his holy place. But rather than feeling a sense of despair, of being excluded, we can actually feel a sense of gratitude and relief. Because the one who comes in verse 5, in verse 5, will receive blessing from the Lord. He will receive blessing from the Lord. And what else will he receive there? Do you see it on the screen? What else will he receive besides blessing? He will receive blessing righteousness. It's a gift. Not he will be given a list of rules that he has to follow in order to come up my holy hill. It's you seek God's face. If you seek God's face, you will be blessed by the Lord and you will receive the gift of righteousness. You'll be declared clean hands. You'll be declared pure heart. You'll be declared never did anything false. Never lifted up your soul to anything that was false. It's a gift for those who seek his face. Hallelujah. Come on up to my holy hill. Come and stand in my holy place. I offer you a blessing if you seek my face, he says, and I offer you the gift of perfect righteousness so that you can come up my holy hill, so that you can stand in my holy place, that I will listen to your prayers, that I will hear your songs of worship, that I will give favor to you in distress, that I will lead you in the way that you should go, that I will forgive your sins. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I know what you did. I wipe it away by paying for it with the blood of my Son. Hallelujah. Who can ascend his holy hill? All who've sought his face will receive a blessing and the gift of righteousness. Righteousness from the God of his salvation. Not just a God of don't worry about it. Oh, that's okay. Not a big deal. Think about Uzzah. It's a big deal. God grants us righteousness leading to our salvation. Now, what does it mean to seek his face? That's an important parameter here. What are we talking about? If I just think happy thoughts about some image of God that I create in my mind or watch some movie with Jesus in it, then I'm good? No, seeking someone's face is a relational act. It's a relational act. Think of it this way. I'm not just seeking to know his name. I'm seeking a face-to-face -face relationship, okay? Look me in the eye. Let's get close. Show me who you are. Let me look into your eyes. Seek my face, he says. 
This means to set your will on knowing him, that you would desire to dwell before him on his terms, that you would orient yourself, your life, all that you have toward his glory, and then you would receive his favor as your greatest delight. Um, Seeking God's face is not a natural act of fallen man. Or as I I read someone else put it, this is a better way to think about it, nobody goes uphill by accident. If you're wandering around, typically you'll go downhill. Unless you have a goal, you won't go uphill, right? Nobody goes uphill by accident. So God is drawing you, calling you, inviting you to seek his face. Seek my face. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek him, okay? Those who seek his face do not turn away from his holiness, that they press in to pursue his righteousness, not as a requirement for entrance, but as a possession that's treasure. So do you seek his face? Do you desire to know him in intimacy? Do you press in to who God is, to know him in the power of his holiness? What are we going to do with this idea? Here's some applications for us. I'm going to skip over. There you go. Thank you, Dylan. So we come to him in faith for salvation. We can only come through Christ. There's no other way. We can't clean our hands ourselves. We can't purify our hearts ourselves. We cannot undo all the wrong that we have done. We can only come to him in faith through Christ. Secondly, we have to come to him in worship. It's not enough to just come to him by faith and say, I gave my life to Jesus, I prayed a prayer when I was a kid, and now I'm off doing my own thing. He invites us to seek his face regularly, an ongoing seeking, okay? But we can only come to him and worship through Christ. We're not worthy to come to God in prayer on our own. We're not worthy to come to him and worship and speak his name on our own. Only by the finished work of Christ. And then, as a way of seeking his face, we would seek to be conformed to his law. We want to seek his moral law. We want to do what he said. He created us, and if we fail, and we do, the Creator can make you a new creation. In fact, that's what He does. He says, behold, I am making all things new. So if you broke it, bring it to the Maker, and He can fix it. He can make it new or better than new. Come to Him. Submit yourself to His moral law. He wants to conform you to be like Christ. And we don't get to pick and choose when and how we obey him. We also don't have to rely on sheer willpower. I'm going to fix this. I got it. I'm going to fix it. That's about as reasonable as my guitar string replacing itself. Okay? We need the maker. We need the healing power of the one who created us in the first place to put us right again, to tune us up, to set us right. And then we have to seek him above all things, not just alongside all the other good things that we love. Yeah, I fit God into my schedule, right? Because he calls, that's why we come. And he is the king. He deserves first place in all of our pursuits. So we seek his face because he wants to have your face. He wants to have relationship with you. He doesn't want to have your back so he can whip it. That's not the relationship that he wants with you. That penalty has been paid by those who've put their trust in Christ. 
Okay, so he's the creator Lord who owns all things and all people. He's the holy Lord who summons holy worshipers into his blessed presence. And now, thirdly, he's the Lord of hosts, the glorious king who comes to us in power. So the previous section, the one we just read, describes those who would come into God's sacred space. It's like, what can I do to come to his hill? What can I do to stand in his place? What do I have to do? What are the requirements? This last section says, he's coming to you. You don't have to strive. He's coming to you. And he's not coming in judgment. He is coming in victory. He is coming in power, but not power to hurt you, not power to crush you, not power to punish you, power that you can access to live the life he has for you. This processional entrance psalm, it's a psalm of procession, has this vivid cry, lift up your heads, O gates. I mean, in Hebrew, there's actually no exclamation marks. You can't find it in the punctuation, but I can't imagine someone saying, uh, let's lift up some gates somewhere. No, this is like, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, ye ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. That's kind of how it should be said. Right? It's a processional. He's coming, and he's the king. You know, don't you, from your study of history that the gates of a city were not just like you walk in and you're, you know, it's like the thing with the latch. No. And it's not like a portcullis or whatever. It's, it's a place that the, is the equivalent in a city of, of like Facebook and City Hall and the courthouse and the local bank and the internet. Because you went there for information, you went there to, to seal covenants, you went there to file suit, you went there to speak with elders, you went there to, to find out what's going on, okay? That's what the gates are. And it's like, hey, all you people who are interested in what's going on, wake up, because the king of glory is coming. All that other business that you had in mind, Put it aside, the king of glory is coming. The king of glory is coming, and he deserves your full attention. And friends, no gate is going to keep him out. It's not a matter of open up, please. No. It's like, wake up, he's coming. He not only made the earth, he's strong and mighty to claim his prize. He's the one powerful conqueror who is mighty in battle against those who would assault his authority. Even the gates of hell will not prevail against him. Hallelujah. He's a powerful king. No one resists his ultimate reign. And this is part of what we think about when we talk about irresistible grace, right? In TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, the I stands for irresistible grace. He's irresistible. When he comes, when he comes to claim his own, no one can resist him. He's the king. He's the mighty king. He's mighty in battle, battling against even your will, battling against the forces of darkness, battling against complacency, battling against busyness, battling against distraction, battling against the sin that you have committed that you think I could never stand in his presence. He's fought that and he's won, folks. Hallelujah. Praise to his name. The king of glory is coming. He's coming for you. 
He's coming for you. He wants to be with you. He's victorious over all his enemies and all your enemies as well. Over sin and death, which in 1 Corinthians 15 is described as an enemy which will be destroyed. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is, say it with me, death will be destroyed by the victorious king who will defeat all of his enemies and all of our enemies. Even death will be destroyed. He is mighty in battle. And he is a king of glory. He's a glorious king. Do you see the beauty in this psalm? Which asks, first of all, who can come? Well, impossible standard. Clean hands, pure heart, no false, ever. And then he says, I give you blessedness and righteousness. Then he says, and I'm coming to be with you. I want to be with you. I want you to seek my face because I want you face to face. I want a relationship with you that's not once a week for an hour or so. I want to be with you, to walk with you, to teach you, to show you, to care for you, to comfort you, to lead you, to, to bless you. I want you. I've, I've set the impossible standard. I've met it on your behalf, and now I'm coming. I'm coming to be with you to make my dwelling with you, that I would be your God and that you would be my people. Do you hear the beauty of this psalm? He's coming. He's our coming king. And he's going to stop at nothing to be with his chosen people. Nothing can stop our mighty king from coming in in victory to claim the church as his bride. And he will cause us to ascend to him at death, because he's provided for our righteousness in Christ. So what do we do with this? He comes to us, our first application, he comes to us, and we should rejoice that our God desires to dwell with us. We should just rejoice. We should rejoice that he wants to be with us. He's holy, he's perfect, he's powerful, he's beautiful, and he's here. And we should rejoice that he wants to be with us. Can you just marvel at that for a minute? That the holy God wants to be with you and bless you? That's, that's worth spending the rest of the day just amazed. And then he can do all that he intends, so we really ought to trust him completely. He can do anything that he wants. We really ought to put our trust in him. He's mighty in battle even against death. We ought to be aware of any of our inclinations that rise up that want to fight against him. And then he is strong. We really should stand with him, not against him. No one's going to defeat him. We might think that there's maybe a third option, you know, that sort of neutral country, the Switzerland of God. It, there's just no, there's no neutral country. You're either for him or you're against him. Because he's mighty in battle, I recommend standing with him. And then we must use what we have to serve him, just as good stewards. He's, he's coming wouldn't we want to be busy about his work with his things? We are his people. He's the king. Any questions? And he's glorious. 
it's, it's just good for us to worship him. I was just so blessed by the music this morning. All, all, the, all the ideas that we sang are just embedded in this psalm. And we should give him the glory. He alone deserves all the glory. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. So giving God glory, this glorious God, is not only the first purpose of mankind, right? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, right? Westminster, Shorter Catechism, number one. It's not only that, it's how we stay in tune with him. How we stay in tune with all of creation is glorifying God. The, the, the heavens declare the glory of God. Ought we not get in tune, right? The rocks are going to cry out if we don't. The gates are going to be lifted up. Why don't we wake up? Wouldn't we want to get in touch with all of God's creation in order to give him the glory that he deserves? He is a king of glory. We ought to be glorifying him. And he loves the cheerful giver. Give him glory. He loves the joyful worshiper. Worship him joyfully. He loves the willing servant. Serve him willingly. He's the king of glory, and we should glorify him. So who is this coming king? This is our coming king. Throughout Scripture, he is our coming king. Hear the word of God. He comes to create hovering over the waters, speaking into existence, proclaiming how good it is. He comes to walk in the garden with his first created people. He comes to speak with Noah about man's evil heart. He comes and dines with Abram. He comes to meet with Moses and reveal his ways to him. He comes to deliver and defend his people from slavery in Egypt. He comes to lead them and feed them in the wilderness. He comes to establish his chosen people in the promised land. He comes to anoint his chosen king, David. He comes to discipline his wayward people in exile. He comes to bring them back from exile. And then he comes as a baby on a holy night. He comes into his people, and they did not receive him. But he comes to make disciples, walking, teaching, feeding, healing. He comes to cleanse his temple for those who've misused it. He comes to Jerusalem, celebrated as a victorious savior. He comes to carry a cross and ascend a particular hill to accomplish our salvation. On the third day, he comes forth from a tomb, and after appearing to many of his disciples, he comes back to ascend to the throne at the right hand of the Father. He then comes in the person of the Holy Spirit to dwell in us, to make us his own, and to spread the gospel to all, all nations, and says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He will come again in victory to take his servants, his people, his children, to be with him home in heaven. And he comes again with a new heavens and a new earth in the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God as a bride adorned for her husband. He will not leave you. He's coming for you. Jesus, our King of glory, is coming soon. Surely he is coming soon. Amen. Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Oh God, how good it is when your people dwell together in unity. How good it is to feast upon your word, to dig in and to see your love for us, your provision for us, your sovereignty over us, and your care for us. 
Lord, impress upon our hearts that we are yours, that this earth is yours, and that is a good thing. Let us embrace it. Let us seek your face. Let us trust your power. Let us stand alongside you. Let us anticipate your coming again and rejoice that you have never, ever left us nor forsaken us. We are unworthy without our mediator, but because of Christ, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Amen. Amen.